This is Learn From Others, where we interview a cross-section of successful individuals so you can learn from their experiences, achievements, and even their mistakes. We ask four questions that will educate and inspire. Greg Stanley will be your guide as we join our guests on a journey from adolescent daydreaming to success in today's world. Join us on this adventure as we learn from others together. Welcome to Learn From Others, where we help others succeed by sharing success. I'm very excited to introduce our special guest, Blake Rudis. Blake, how are you doing today? Great. How about yourself? I'm doing fantastic. Well, before we find out what you actually do today, if you would, tell us what you wanted to be when you grew up. Oh, man, that's that's crazy. I think if, if you asked my dad what I wanted to be, he'd probably tell you a priest, because I think that's what I told him. Um, <laughs> my, my mom said I wanted to be a pig farmer. Um, but, you know, I think... When it really came down to, it, I was always really big into art, and I always wanted to be an artist. I always wanted to do something with my hands, and I didn't necessarily know what that was. But um, whatever you could put in my hands, whether it was clay, paint, you know, pens, whatever it was, I, I would I would doodle all day. So, an artist. Okay, I do need to go back to those other two occupations. <laughs> what was there something in which your your dad would have said? Oh, like did you pray a lot at the bedside? Um, and then did you have a pet pig, or did you always say you wanted a pig? No, I think the the priest thing. I don't know where that came from. Um, <laughs> but uh, I was named after a priest. Actually, he just passed away last year. Uh, it was a really good friend with my of my dad's uh, father, Blake, and. Uh, so I, I don't know if it came from that or if maybe maybe my brothers and sisters found out about that I was named after a priest and they just kind of picked on me or something like that. I don't know what that was. And then uh, the pig farmer thing, you know, I had a pig pillow. I remember that. And I think maybe <laughs> one time I was just asked and I said, yeah, I want to be a pig farmer. It sounds like a fun job. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I like my pillow. Yeah, why not? Well, that's cool. Well, what was one of your favorite subjects or hobbies in school? Was it art? It was. You know, for me, it was it was art and math. Um I, I loved math for some reason, um, not necessarily the trig and stuff like that, but I, I liked it when something worked, you know, when you added something together and you could so prove that it worked. I really enjoyed that, but um, I was always into the arts. So, uh, you know, I, I went to school for art and uh, painting, um, sculpting, photography, um, all that stuff. That was all my favorite. So, so what did you, did you excel at all or did you lean towards one more than the other? Um, you know, about my senior year of high school, um, it was really interesting because I, I wanted to go from art two to art three and there was four arts in, in our, in our school, basically three arts and then an independent study. And my art teacher said, no, you, you shouldn't do art three. And I, I, I was immediately just kind of taken aback and I just didn't do it. So I pursued, um, videography and, uh, as I was in the video class, I wasn't really happy with the video class and the way it was running. So I went back to my art teacher my senior year and I said, hey, um, you know, can I switch into art three now? And he goes, well, why didn't you take art three? I said, because you told me not to. And he said, well, I tell everyone not to take art three. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> he, like said, he wants to prove that you want to do it because it's a portfolio based art studio, essentially, where every week, 52 weeks, you have a project that you're even working over the summer. Um, so... Uh, he was kind of testing his art three students. So he said, you know what, I'll put you in independent study. So in independent study, I built um, basically a life-size dragon. It was about eight feet long by like eight feet high. And it was used in several plays at the school. It took me all year to do it. Um, and that included all, all kinds of stuff. So it was, you know, the drawing for like kind of like the to plot it out to see what it was going to be. And then the actual sculpture with like the chicken wire and all the 
the framework that I had to do for it and then the painting of it to, to finish it off. And uh, it's kind of funny. I didn't I didn't ever expected it because I always thought there was other people that were better than me. But I ended up getting the best artist of my senior class back in 2000 for that, which is actually kind of cool. Well, yeah, that's really cool. I mean, it's a dragon. So come on. I mean, yeah, it's got to be cool. Do you have a picture you can share in the future? I'm, I might. I might be able to dig a picture of that up. We'll see. That'd be really cool. And did you name the dragon? I don't know. You know, it was like <laughs> 19 years ago. Gosh, man, that, that really starts to date you, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, what what was your first job? When were you got a paycheck and felt like you had some responsibilities? Uh, my first job was Taco Bell, actually. Um, I think I was 15. And, That's a uh, great first job. It was. It really was. Um, it was a summer job. My buddy got a job there. And then, of course, you know, the word spreads. They need help. So um, I would get rides with him and his family. Um, and, you know, it was one of those things. I had to go to the payphone and call my dad to pick me up from work. And, um, yeah, I, I did that for about three or four months and then uh, went back to school. Um, you know, it was a summer job, essentially. So what was your favorite Taco Bell meal? Ooh, that's a tough one. At the time, you know, like I, I have never, eaten, I have, I don't even think I've eaten Taco Bell since then. But um, <laughs> probably was, wise. Yeah, and it was, <laughs> it was the gordita shells. Uh, whatever you could stuff in that gordita was just awesome because it was kind of like, uh, kind of like non bread, you know, like the thickness of non bread, but like you could put whatever you wanted in it. So, it was, and when you work there, you can make whatever you want. So, <laughs> right, right, yeah, I would you get experimental stuff that gordita with whatever I wanted. <laughs> That's awesome. I I love the Mexican pizza, and I haven't had one of those probably in twenty years. So yeah, wow. Well, now we understand the start of your career journey. What do you do today? Uh, what I do today is actually kind of interesting. I'm a self-employed blogger, I guess, if you want to kind of put a term to it. But I kind of prefer the the term internet entrepreneur. So I started a blog in 2010 to document um, my photography that I was doing. It landscape photography for the most part. I was living in California and wanted to document my travels and I did it through photography and it started out as just being a place to showcase my work, which then ended up turning into people asking me for my process and how I made my pictures, which turned into a YouTube channel, which turned into eBooks, which turned into courses. When now I have my own basically online photography Academy that I've built that I put stuff up on a daily basis. Oh, wow. That's awesome. So if you would walk us through that moment in Taco Bell <laughs> in high school to how did you get to become known as a photographer, like t- kind of walk us through your career journey up into today, different positions you had, different companies you worked for, just to kind of get a sense of your career journey. Absolutely. So, you know, Taco Bell, Taco Bell ended really abruptly. I actually quit there because I had a, a really bad manager and I saw what I wanted to be and it definitely was not a manager um, like that. So I moved on from Taco Bell and then um, had a couple odds and ends job throughout high school. But right when I joined, uh, right when I got into college, actually, at the University of Delaware, I went to school for printmaking and sculpture. Uh, while I was there, I couldn't, we really couldn't afford school. So um, I had to look for an alternative. I had to look for some options and I couldn't get enough hours to work at the school. I was working four jobs when I was at school, essentially, and I just couldn't get enough hours to pay for school. So I joined the Air Force National Guard in 2001, um, November 29th, 2001, very shortly after uh, September 11th. After I joined, I've been in, I've actually, I'm still in, I've been in for 17 years in the Air Force National Guard. And that, that I think is probably um, where I gained a lot of confidence. So if there's any any young people listening to this, uh, which I think that's pretty much where the, the, the main demographic is, is that 
Um, I didn't have a lot of confidence when I was in, in high school. I, was, I always consider myself kind of like the dorky nerdy kid. You know, I didn't play sports. Um, I was really into things that I pretty much got picked on for. And right. I called a dork and a nerd for. Um, I'm glad I did, though, because those are the things that end up paying off in the future. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, I, it, it was just, you know, minor picks at minor, minor little jabs, but it really dug at my self-confidence. And it wasn't until I joined the Air Force National Guard, went through basic training, went through tech school, deployed to Afghanistan, deployed to Africa that I realized, like, all the stuff that I've done on my journey being an Air Force National Guard member has built up so much confidence in me that there's nothing I can't do. It's such a profound thing to think about now to go back and look at my life and how that, that kind of formed to go from being the kid that got picked on for, for his interests to right. then turning those interests into what now is essentially the CEO of a self-employed business. Um, that that job that I've had with the Air Force National Guard has been has been phenomenal. I did I worked there full time for about um, eight years as a parachute rigger. I worked for a pararescue base in California, in Moffett Field, California. So I was you know, packing parachutes for guys that were jumping out of airplanes on a daily basis and uh, deployed to Afghanistan with them and to Africa with them. Wow. So now I'm actually a first sergeant in the Air Force National Guard, which is kind of like the um, enforcer of policy, um, the camp counselor, the <laughs> – it's kind of like the go-to man if you don't know where to go. That's kind of right. who I am. So, Well, thank you for your service, first of all. That's really amazing. And that's really cool how it kind of formed you into uh, who you are today, developed you, and gave you the confidence to do different things. That's really cool. Absolutely. I mean – you know, when, when, when you have someone walk into your office and say, hey, um, you're jumping out of a plane today. And you're like, uh, I am. <laughs> <laughs> right. And they strap, they strap you to them and then you jump out of an airplane with them. It's just, you know, you, you realize, wow, I, I can jump out of a plane. I can, I can do anything. There's, there's nothing, literally even the sky isn't the limit anymore. You know, I, there's nothing that we can't do. So now how long was your deployment and then what happened afterwards? My deployment to Afghanistan was um, about six months after you do all the, the travel time and stuff. Um, that was before uh, the well, – there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes into that now. But it's about six months to Afghanistan and four months to Africa. And, you know, when I first went, I was I was kind of uh, like most young people. I was, you know, definitely afraid of, of deploying. It was one of those things that I knew I had to do because I signed up for it. And I raised my right hand. I said, this is something I'm going to do. Uh, and I'm fully willing to do it. It was just one of those things that hits you. It's like, okay, we're no longer playing games anymore. You know, you're no longer right. training anymore. All your training is building up to this. So uh, after I got back from Afghanistan, that's when I bought my first camera, actually. I uh, had the money to do it, obviously, because, you know, come back from a place and you're not spending any money while you're there. So you get home. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> bought my first camera and got serious about it. And I started doing a lot of photography on the uh, California coast, which which led me to my interest in photography. You know, I got my degree in printmaking and sculpture, which has nothing to do really with photography. Uh, but then I found a real love for the process of photography. And so you're out there taking photographs and are you starting to sell them? Are you getting contracts for photography? How are you getting uh, an income where you become a photographer. Yeah, that's so funny. There's so many different directions that photographers can go. And, <laughs> you know, for me, um, I did, I think what every, 
photographer starting off does. I thought that the money for my photography would be in uh, portraiture. So I put an ad out on, on Craigslist at the time and said, hey, I'm a photographer looking for some gigs. If you need a photographer, call me up. So this gentleman called me and said, hey, can you come and photograph my, my daughter for her winter ball? And I said, yeah, sure. That sounds like fun. Well, and I get there, um, it wasn't just her daughter or his daughter. It was his daughter and 14 couples. Uh, and wow. I, I was way out of my element because I'd never done that before. And I found out very quickly that that was not the place for me. You know, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a, I'm a very timid photographer. So when it comes to telling people what to do on camera, it's really not the thing uh, that I'm very good at. So I don't do people. I don't do weddings. I don't do um, any any real uh, paid gigs. I uh, don't even really sell prints. Now, I know that there's a lot of people that do that. I have a lot of peers that do that. But it, it, there's these little camps, these little pocket camps, basically, in photography where you know, either you do the service-provided photography where you're um, providing a service for someone like a wedding or portrait work or headshots or um, even, you know, like the new thing now is uh, these kind of day-in-the-life shoots where you're just photographing a family doing their thing. And then there's the, the other camp, which is the making prints and selling prints on the road. Um, and then there's someone like me who uh, basically I don't really have any interest in trying to sell my work. It's mainly teaching people how to make their work better. So mm-hmm. uh, falling into that, though, and figuring out how to get there was was a nightmare at first because I, I didn't know, should I be doing product photography? Should I be dying? I even tried that for a little while. And uh, none of it really stuck. I never really felt the whole uh, passion for doing service-based photography. Now, I know that there's a lot of people that do. So I went to YouTube. I started a YouTube channel and started generating very small revenue from, you know, ads and stuff like that on, on YouTube. Uh, but but it really wasn't until I started uh, turning it into an online community where I've got people that, that wanted to pay for my knowledge that I started to make money off of photography or, you know, in that avenue, I should say, of photography. Wow, that's pretty interesting. Did they seek you first? By seeing your work, or did you kind of solicit cold call folks? How did that work? Because that's a big jump. It, it is really, it's it's honestly, I to this day, it's very difficult for me to even try to answer how I got to where I am. <laughs> I mean, I, organically, just say organically. It, it was very organic. <laughs> I, I, I was very, um, very avid about content. So I posted Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for three years. Uh, for the first part of my blog, I didn't have an email list either, which I found out later in, in my career that that was a huge no-no. Uh, but I was basically just putting this content out there and and getting hits. And I put it on YouTube and people would go from YouTube to my website. Uh, and so it was all just, it was very organic growth. Uh, but really, I wasn't even trying to gain an, an audience. I was doing everything wrong. So if you really think of everything I'm saying right now, I, was, I did everything backwards. Um, <laughs> I was only posting YouTube, not as a social platform, but posting to YouTube because back in 2011, the only place that you could basically host a video was to post it to YouTube. And then you take that link and you'd host it on your website because hosting for video was very expensive. You right. couldn't just upload a video to any server and have someone running it off of the website like you can today. So uh, it was accidental. It was very accidental. And just, you know, I, I started doing what I was doing at a time when there wasn't a lot of me's doing it. Uh, mm-hmm. So I had a good foothold in, in a very niche 
area of photography. Well, now, what is your typical week like? Uh, my typical week is uh, my office is in my house. It's um, basically under my master bedroom in the basement. You Harry Potter there underneath the stairwell or something? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's really interesting the way they laid the house out. I have to leave my house to go to my office, but my office is in the house. Oh, wow. Okay. Inside doors. <laughs> so it's really nice. I get to actually leave my office. I have a commute. It's about six steps from my basement door <laughs> to my office. But my typical day, I, I wake up when my kids wake up. I have three three growing boys, um, an eight-year-old uh, and a five-year-old and a 21-month-old, Michael, William, Matthew. So I wake up with them. We eat breakfast together. Uh, I eat lunch with my wife and my youngest son. And uh, eat dinner. I'm home by four, obviously, because I'm six steps from my office. And then, uh, <laughs> but I do have a very strict schedule. It's an eight to four with a, a eleven to an eleven thirty lunch. I'm very, very strict about that. Otherwise, I don't get any work done. Uh, but my typical work week is um, I, I have two different websites. I have a free website which is called F64 Academy, and then I have one called F64 Elite. F64 Elite is the paid subscription site where I do critique sessions and I do course material and I uh, do some monthly challenges and interface with my community in the paid uh, atmosphere. And then on the F64 Academy, that's where I do my YouTube videos and stuff. So my my main day is actually looking towards what content I'm building for the month for F64 Elite, the content I'm building for F64 Academy, and then any future-paced content that I'm going to be building that would be outside of that. So like this Friday, I'm going to Yosemite National Park to do some photography there. And in March, I'm going to France. So, you know, basically just building off what, what's going to happen and, and where I'm going to be photographing these things to then present to my audience. Right. Okay. Well, that's really cool. Now, a little bit into the nuts and bolts here. What's your favorite social media platform to get your word out? I definitely say YouTube. YouTube first and then a, a growing second is starting to become Instagram. Mm -hmm. But I, you know, I really like YouTube. I like the fact that we have a, a forum that we can go to where, I mean, yeah, you can watch some, some silly videos here and there, or, you know, some hobby based videos, but there are people that are giving out knowledge that you can't buy in a library. You know what I mean? And they're doing it for free. And YouTube can be one of the greatest assets for, the best knowledge out there because you've got subject matter experts that just want to give you their knowledge. So I, and, and the, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of negativity in that sphere. A lot of people are very um, thankful for the stuff that you're doing for them on there. So I really do appreciate YouTube the most, I think. Uh, but I do like Instagram for the social aspect, you know, just the whole, hey, look at my highlight reel and see where I've been type deal. You know, that's Instagram is nice for that because it's all obviously I'm a photographer, so it's all pictures. You know, I just scroll through and see pictures. Right. OK. All right. Cool. As a reminder, you can check out all previous episodes at learnfromothers.org. And if you're an educator or a student, you can search for podcasts by career cluster and additional resources are under the resource tab. So we learned what you want to be when you grew up, which was something to do with art, and what you're doing today, which is something to do with art or an artistic forum. So if you could do it all over again, what would you do differently? It sounds like you said, I did it all wrong, so I'm <laughs> thinking you probably have some things you would do differently. Oh, absolutely. You know, I didn't know I was becoming an internet, internet entrepreneur, so I didn't really know what to do. Um, I didn't have a mentor that was an internet entrepreneur. Uh, so I made a lot of mistakes not knowing what I was supposed to be doing in that world, even though I didn't even know where I was going. <laughs> you know, so like right, right. Uh, when people ask me about um, my career path and how it's gone and how I've gotten to the point that I've gotten to with the success, basically going from an unpainted intern in 2000. 
10 to a CEO in 2014. You know, how does that happen? I, I didn't have somebody that I could reach out to and say, okay, uh, how do you become an internet entrepreneur and how do you build a community and how do you, um, though that didn't really exist at the time. So I had to kind of find that stuff on my own. The beauty of it now is that there's a lot of people that are doing this. So if I could do it differently, I, I think um, I, I probably would have sought out a mentor in this if I could have at the time. But there, like I said, there wasn't a whole lot of people doing it. And the people that were would not share anything with you. Um, you know, mm, it's not mm-hmm. like it is today where you know, even you can pay someone a hundred bucks for a course and you can learn more in that course than you could, you know, in, in, in trying to research it on your own. Um, so it, it's kind of hard to say what, what would I, what would I have done differently? Um, because right. Yeah. There wasn't a lot of other options to no. do something differently at the time. But right? now I, I think now, especially if you're trying to, to work towards that, to becoming that, you know, internet entrepreneur slash, it sounds kind of weird, but almost like that celebrity presence within your, within your, um, genre is to just, you know, follow in the footsteps of those individuals, see what they did to get to where they were and, and reach out to people. You know, I've, I've learned, um, very quickly that being open-minded to others uh, is really important uh, because every single person that I've met, no matter in what form I've met them in, everybody has had, has offered me something. If I'm open-minded enough to accept that they can offer me something, you know, a, a lot of times we just see people and we close our mind for whatever reason that might be. And we don't allow that to be an opportunity where we can actually grow. But uh, along all the journeys that I've been on and all the workshops that I've been to and all the places that I've been, I found that there's always one or two people that I latch onto. And then I become really good friends with those individuals and I stay in touch with them and, and we build a really strong bond. Um, and so kind of what I've gathered from that is that there's no way to get to where you want to be without having somebody else there that can help you get there. Now that's great advice. Well, you kind of touched on it already, but let's make the assumption someone wants to do what you do. What advice would you give them? So that could either be as a photographer or as the internet entrepreneur, whichever direction you want to go in. Um, yeah, you know, really when it comes comes down to if you wanted to become an internet entrepreneur, that, that one's a little bit harder to answer than becoming a photographer. But if you want to become an internet entrepreneur, um, you really have to be in touch with email marketing, social media, not necessarily social media from a marketing standpoint, though, because... You know, social media, you have to understand, is a free and fun place. People want to go there for free and fun things. But email marketing is the key, and I see this amongst a lot of my peers. I have a lot of peers in this in this uh, realm of, of Internet entrepreneurship, and it's shocking how many of them are not using email marketing to the, you know, the, the degree that they should. And the other thing is also understanding that, yes, I, I want to be a photographer, but 5% of my job is photography. Right. <laughs> 95% of my job is business, you know, and, and when I was in school, going to school for art, you know, I just thought that I was going to be an artist and I would make money because that's what happens. And, and it doesn't, you know, you, you have to be, you have to understand what your unique mechanism is with the unique thing that you do that nobody else can offer. And you have to know how to double down on that. You have to know um, what makes you unique and how you can market that so that individuals will want to, to get into your, your movement. Everyone has a movement that they're trying to, to, to pursue at some point. Um, and it sounds, I don't want that to sound like everything's about money, but if you want to make money in the arts, you have to be a good business person. You know, they, you'll also often hear that, you know, people like Van Gogh and, and, and Da Vinci, uh, they didn't 
they didn't make any money until they died. Right. Why do you right. think that is? It's because their art was valuable after they passed away, but you can still be valuable in the time that you're creating. You just have to know where your value is so that you can market it. Right. That's great advice. Well, let's drill it down just a little bit further. What advice would you give a student who is currently enrolled in a college, university, or a trade school? You know, that's that's good, especially if you're going to school for art. You know, I can definitely speak on art because um, that's I went to school for printmaking and sculpture. And I, I think really get yourself online as soon as possible. Build yourself an online portfolio as soon as you can, uh, specifically with your name. So your name.com so that people know that that's you or some variation of your name.com. Um, because really you can do anything with that. Once you own that domain, that can be whatever you want to do with it. But I don't think that I spent enough time in college worrying about how I was going to market myself as an artist. And actually I had most of my friends who are accountants in business uh, or even, um, you know, hotel and restaurant management degrees, um, education degrees. Again, even in my adult life in college, kind of poking fun at me. Oh, great. What are you going to do with printmaking and sculpture? You know, what are you going to do with that <laughs> finger painting degree that you're getting? And I, I heard that. And, you know, sometimes I still joke about it, too. But, you know, I learned a lot about myself because I was pursuing and I don't want to degrade anybody who is pursuing art, because honestly, uh, if you're going to school for art, you're going to school to pursue yourself which is mm -hmm. really powerful because art is an extension of who we are as a human being and what the it's the mark that we make on this world. So um, in my personal opinion, I think you're going to school for something just as respectable as being a doctor or a lawyer or anybody else. Uh, but doctors and lawyers have that prescribed as to what their career path is going to be after they get out of school because many have gone before them and many are doing that. And I want artists to know that they can make just as much money, if not more, in many cases more, and doctors and lawyers and accountants, you know, that's, you just have to know how to market yourself and, and how to market your value and know your, your statement and what it is that you, that the mark that it is that you are leaving so that, um, that becomes something that you can market. So a lot of the things that, that you're going to go through, you're going to think that, you know, as an artist that you can just paint and you can just do photography, but there's a business side of that that has to be uh, that has to be pursued as well. And if you're not pursuing that side of things, that's where you get the starving artist concept. You know, right. Best people know how to market themselves. So I never had much of that advice when I was in college. I, we we had one class that was like a one credit course that we had to take as a senior that was called like studio st studio performance, something like that. And it was basically how to build a portfolio, how to build a resume, how to build, but nothing about, you know, how do you, how do you look at yourself as this person that has value uh, that can be marketed. And that was an, an aspect that was missing. Right. No, that's great advice. Well, are there any current projects you're working on that you would like to share? Uh, at this point, uh, in I'll be releasing a infrared photography course with a fellow photographer in um, France. Again, I never thought I'd be photographing a different spectrum of light, but we're building a course and we're building a panel. We're building a, a very extensive education program to go along with uh, infrared photography and basically awareness for infrared photography. So we're pretty excited about that. It's called um, creativelightir.com. Now, that sounds really fascinating because you say infrared light. What do I think of? Can you guess? A uh, TV remote. Actually, no. I think of the Predator movies. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, that was so cool. I, I can't even. It's got to be a whole new world that you're is. opening up by photographing in infrared light. 
And you know, our cameras, uh, just to give you kind of a little background on this, our cameras actually have a blocker in there that keeps it from recording infrared light and only letting uh, visible light pass through. So essentially what they do is they take out that blocker and they put in another sensor that heightens the acceptance of uh, said infrared light, whatever spectrum you want to shoot in. And um, it's kind of cool because you can get a mixture of visible light with infrared light. So you're seeing the infrared world while seeing a little bit of the visible world. So you can actually edit in infrared color, which is it's 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 the artist playground, the artist photographer's playground. It's actually a lot of fun. Wow, that's really cool. And actually, I kind of misspoke. I think in Predator, it was the heat temperature that they could see, which is different. Correct? Right. Yeah, that's different. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, there was that one scene where he like flipped through his wristband all these different view modes, and I bet one of them was infrared. <laughs> well, they do use infrared in uh, these infrared and UV actually to spot camouflage. Oh, because, wow! Uh, yeah, like if I'm wearing all black, and I and you see me through an infrared camera, um, depending on because the infrared light doesn't necessarily bounce off of that fabric and reflect black. It does in the visible light world. But that might reflect orange. So someone could be wearing all black in the woods and you put an infrared camera up and you can see them in a heartbeat because their black clothing is actually looking more like an orangish white. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. So that's going to make some really cool pictures. Yeah. (laughs) So it it does. It basically turns foliage like you can turn foliage into it looks like a white. It looks like everything is snowing with a with a blue sky, even though it's green leaves. So you can get some pretty cool, pretty cool effects with that. Oh, that's really cool. Well, as with most journeys, success largely depends on reliable transportation, and I'm a huge car enthusiast, so could you please tell me, what was your first car? First car was a handed down through all my brothers, and my brother and my sister, it was a Plymouth Acclaim, a 1992 Plymouth Acclaim, so like the boxiest of boxy cars you can get. Were you the last one to get that car? I was, and it had all the problems. And I, tried. I was about to say, how did it survive even two <laughs> siblings, much less four, or however many? Yeah, it was three of us, and it, it didn't survive very long. I tried. I tried so hard, but I just couldn't couldn't do it after my brother and sister beat it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, what is your dream car, if you have one? It's going to sound crazy, but um, the 2000 model Toyota MR2 Spider. Oh, like nice. Two, That's a nice one. Yeah, between 2000 and 2004. And, you know... I don't know what it is about that car, but I, every time I see one, I get anxiety. I'm like, oh, I got, <laughs> and like, I could probably go out and buy one right now for probably you know three or four thousand dollars or something like that. But <laughs> I don't know what it is about that car. But yeah, that would be my dream car. It's funny because that was the first car I actually tried to buy as my first car. Oh, really? And the problem was is they were asking for I think forty five hundred dollars, and they had this really amazing stereo. And I couldn't afford it with the stereo, so I asked him, "Would you take out the stereo and lower a thousand dollars off the price?" <laughs> and I never got it because I couldn't afford the extra stereo. Uh, the funny, in it. the funny thing about that is, I um, right after I got back from Afghanistan, actually, I went, to, I drove past a dealership, and they had an MR2 it was a 2002 yellow MR2 Spider, uh, and I went there and I test drove it. And as I'm test driving, I was, I was actually right about to buy it. But I just kept thinking about like, you know, I gel my hair and as I was driving, my hair was like touching the roof of this car. And I kept thinking to myself, like, <laughs> you know, I lived in California, I was away from my family. I was thinking to myself, like, my mom would kill me if she saw me driving this thing. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually, I take it back. Mine was the earlier, the, the earlier generation, like a 92 or 93 version, the yeah. smaller square one. So, wow. Well, that's really cool. Well, one perk to some jobs is a company car. So if I had all the money in the world, I'd love to buy a really cool company car based on your job. So now 
I did this based on it as a your job as a photographer. Mm-hmm. So that's where I was coming from. And basically, I Googled who are the best photographers for cars, automobiles. And the number one guy, according to a couple different articles, his name is Richard Thompson. Does that name ring a bell? Do you know any automotive photographers? No, no. Well, this guy, he tends to specialize in high-end exotic cars, so you got a good car from here. So I picked out the coolest, most recent high-end car that he's been photographing, and it's the, let's see if I get this right, uh, Pagani Huayra. Are you familiar with that car at all? No. So this is the supercar of supercars. So this makes a Lamborghini look like, you know, a Toyota Celica. (laughs) (laughs) So I will send you a picture. It is a gorgeous car. Everything's done by hand. I mean, it's the the finest materials. It's got a Mercedes V12 700 horsepower engine in the back, gullwing doors, absolutely gorgeous car. So if I had all the money in the world, that's the car I would get you. Nice. company car. Not very practical <laughs> with three kids. <laughs> no, and I'm like, I'm a total practical car guy. I mean, like, I, I researched a RAV4 for a year and a half before I bought it. I'm like, <laughs> I want the most practical and reliable vehicle to get me from point A to point B. So, Well, this one could take you from the front of your house to your back of your house, maybe, for work. There you so. go. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking us on your journey. What's the best way our listeners can learn more about you and your company? Yeah, if you just go to f64academy.com, uh, that's my main squeeze where I, I put all my, my stuff. So if you like what you see, feel free to email me from that page. Cool. Well, thanks, Blake, so much for taking us on your journey today. No, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Learn From Others, where we help others succeed by sharing success. Where will our next adventure take us? Subscribe to find out. If you know of someone who has a cool career story or occupation, contact Greg through Instagram at Greg Stanley LFO. That's G-R-E-G-S-T-A-N-L-E-Y-L-F-O. And we will see you soon as we learn from others together.